Well, good evening. It is good again to see you out this evening. And take your Bibles, if you will, as we turn to the book of Jonah and uh, dig into this text together again here tonight. Uh, as we do that, uh, one of my great struggles at this time of the year is the cottonwood trees. And uh, they're attacking me right now. So I'm on a, a lot of uh, medicine tonight. So uh, trying to alleviate the sinus pressure that's building up uh, across the bridge of my nose and uh, creating some pain back towards the back of my neck. So if I misspeak, uh, correct me, I guess, and uh, let me know that it's not right. Say, hey, I don't think you quite meant to say something like that, but uh, I've taken quite a bit of uh, Sudafed to try to get rid of it, and so we'll see how we're, we do tonight. But we're in Jonah chapter 3. As we're here in Jonah 3, so many of us, especially after uh, Sunday school hour and growing up hearing the stories of, of the Bible, the, these narratives that have played out and given us such great theological lessons to us, uh, there's a lot of times where we will come to Jonah chapter 3 and we think that it's over. Uh, that all of the action has taken place. And most Christians reach this, and the impression is, you know what, we've, we've got a couple more chapters to go, but really all the action is over, and we're going to now move on, and we're going to dig deeply and uh, move to the next book. And that's kind of the way that we handle it. And there may be some faint awareness that Nineveh is going to repent, and Jonah was not too happy about it, and so forth, but... We got through the great fish story about Jonah, and that seems to be it. And so in our Bible reading throughout the month, we just, maybe we're reading every day, trying to finish out all the chapters of the Bible in a year, and we just say, okay, we're moving on. And so that's the way we handle it. But I want to challenge us, because Jonah chapter 3 actually holds the key to spiritual awakening. There's some significant truth here, a return to spiritual health and vitality that begins in the pulpit and spreads throughout the church. We are in desperate need today to follow the example of Jonah and for people to respond like the Ninevites are to respond. And that is the great joy of chapter 3. But there's also some great lessons for you and I to learn in Jonah 3. And so we're going to spend some time here, we're recognizing Jonah preaches, we're just saying Jonah leave the shores of the Mediterranean and go to Nineveh, and as he gets to Nineveh, he begins to preach. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to pick up and we're going to see the results of his preaching, but tonight we have the great opportunity to see the Lord demonstrate great mercy to Jonah. And as we do so, I want us to read the beginning here. We're going to read through verse 4 of Jonah chapter 3, and then we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Scripture says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the lessons that we learn from the book of Jonah tonight. Lord, for every one of us here tonight, we praise you. 
We give, you mer- or we give you glory for the mercy that you have demonstrated to us for second chances. I praise you that you didn't fire Jonah, you didn't accept his resignation, but you would use him to accomplish the greatest revival perhaps in the history of this planet. We praise you that we have opportunity to study in depth not only the second chance that you gave to Jonah, but also his message that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say tonight is my prayer. And I ask that we would have sensitive hearts to know how you desire to work through your servants, that your name would be glorified. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it. Give me the words to speak that they would be from you, that your name would be exalted, high and lifted up in all that we say and do here tonight. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray, amen. As we begin, we need to rehearse a little bit because there's some pieces we need to put together as we see Jonah's first chance. Jonah's first chance takes us back to the beginning of the book, Jonah chapter 1, and we read this in verse 2, Jonah 1, 2, says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. So he, say, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarsus, away from the presence of the Lord. That's where we find Jonah, and we find him disobeying the Lord right off. He's, his first chance at obedience, and Jonah falls flat on his face. The Lord wants him to go and has given specific and clear instructions. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 reminds us, starts out with the reminder that this is the second time that the, Lord, the word of the Lord has come to Jonah. So when we go back to the first time, we see characteristics developed. Instead of going to Nineveh in obedience, Jonah goes to Joppa. Remember that because that's an important element for our study tonight. You're going to put some pieces together as we go into chapter 3. Jonah heads to Joppa and he boards a ship headed to Tarsus, that is on the coast of Spain, And he does so for a few reasons, at least three that we're going to identify tonight. First, Jonah does not obey God because he's a patriotic Jew. As a patriotic Jew, he believes, and many others, and we see this in the attitude of the Pharisees of the time of Jesus, we see it throughout Israel's history, but many Israelites had the idea that salvation belonged to Israel. Salvation was Israel's. Jonah is going to learn differently, as we'll see in just a moment. Jonah was also bitter because he understood the mercy of God and perhaps maybe even fearful of the cruelty of the Assyrians and so didn't believe that they should receive mercy. So Jonah's bitter that somebody other than Israel is going to receive the mercy of God. And there's probably fear with that. Jonah didn't want God to show his great mercy to those who were so brutal, and he admits that in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I knew you were going to do this in chapter 4, verse 2. So those three issues, Jonah's seeking to withhold God's mercy from the Assyrians. Jonah knows that God is going to be merciful to the Assyrians, and Jonah believes that salvation belongs to Israel. But as we go through what we have studied so far in the book of Jonah, turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, and Jonah learns a very important lesson in Jonah 2, 9. He learns that salvation belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to Israel. It belongs to the Lord. 
And you and I must learn this lesson as well. Notice Jonah 2.9, it says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is after, or at least we, as we studied it, we believe it to be after the three days that Jonah has already been in the belly of this great fish. Jonah has been here and finally has confessed And in that confession, he comes to the great realization that salvation is not Jonah's to dispense. It's not Israel's only to receive, but salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is an important truth that you and I must understand. You and I have been called to be those who are great commission bearers, those who take the gospel with us wherever we go. And it is not our opportunity, our authority, and our ability to withhold the gospel from those that we deem unable to receive it. It ought not to be left up to us, and it isn't left up to us, to say, you know what, that person, my neighbor, is just too far away. They can't be reached for the sake of Christ. I mean, after all, haven't you seen them? They have tattoos on their face and their arms, and uh, they're addicted to drugs, and they're alcoholics. They throw loud parties, and they're just too far away. It's pretty easy for us as Christians to slip into that mindset and say, my neighbor, they're just, they're just not good people. Therefore, I'm not going to share the gospel with them because they're not going to believe anyway. That's kind of the attitude of Jonah, and it takes three days in the belly of a great fish for him to realize that salvation doesn't belong to Jonah's dispensary. It belongs to the Lord. And Jonah has learned this, le- this lesson that salvation is the Lord's and he will give it to whomever he desires to give it to. It's the Lord's. And it still is the Lord's. So that is Jonah's first chance. We studied it and not very long ago did we study it. So we're not spending a lot of time there, but it helps set the stage for Jonah's second chance. And as we see the second chance, I want you to pay particular attention to the grace of God. Notice as we come into chapter 3, we're just going to begin just with the first few words. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Think of the grace and mercy that is demonstrated by God in those few words. Let's not take for granted what is being done in this moment. It's easy for us to say, well, the Lord's had the great fish belch Jonah out onto the shore and uh, end, of, end of the action. But I think the greater action is happening right now. In these few verses, in these few words, rather, of this first verse of chapter 3, God gives Jonah a second chance. Aren't you thankful that God gives second chances? I'm not going to ask you to indicate by show of hands, but how many of us, answer this internally, how many of us have needed that second chance? I've said very often throughout this study, let's not be too harsh on Jonah, because you and I are just like him. We need that second chance as well. One author writes this, he says, if we were to say, if we were to say, go home now, Jonah, I'm glad you repented of your disobedience, but you're no longer useful to me. We would be just and reasonable in doing so. The end of chapter 2, Jonah, you know what? Go home. 
You want to quit? Fine. Go. The author continues and he says, Does God stoop to use those who have rejected his calling, turned a deaf ear to his word? He continues by saying, Yes, he is like that. Yes, he does use such messengers. If he did not, none of us could serve him. Think of Peter and his denials of the Lord. Aren't you thankful that the Lord gave Peter a second chance? Think through all of the ones. Think of Thomas, doubting as he was, not present with the disciples in the the room, doubting. The Lord gives him a second chance. Think of John Mark. Paul was very reluctant to give John Mark a second chance, but eventually the Lord would soften the heart of Paul to allow Mark to minister to Paul. So much so that Paul yearned for that relationship. You know, we we ought to be those who read this and recognizing where Jonah is at. Praise God that God gave Jonah a second chance. You and I typically are not that way. You offend me once, shame on you, but you're not going to offend me again. That's kind of how we treat one another often. We hold each other so, so tightly that you better not fail me. I praise the Lord that the Lord is not like that. And we must be careful uh, to not allow this to create uh, in us, while we're thinking of this great mercy of of the Lord, we must be careful not to allow this to create in us some kind of defense for disobedience. Well, God is going to give me a second chance anyway, so if I blow it, I blow it. That's not what's being said either. But we are to be proclaiming the grace of God. How many times have you been forgiven and given another chance to do something for the glory of God? Praise God for those opportunities, and that is the new beginning that Jonah has the opportunity to experience. There is a call in the second chance because the Lord says this, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God says, Jonah, I'm still sending you. Jonah had tried to resign. He said, he had said to the Lord, in essence, I'm done. You want me to go to a people that I don't want to go to. You want me to proclaim a message I don't want to proclaim. I'm out. Find somebody else. I can't hide from your presence, but I'm going to go as far away as I possibly can go. And I'm resigning. That was Jonah. But the Lord has reestablished and given him a new beginning, a new opportunity to proclaim the message that he was to proclaim first. And so that is vitally important. And it's also important that we recognize that our message is to proclaim the mercy and the grace of God. That's what Jonah was to proclaim. Notice what his message was in uh, verse 2 of chapter 3. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. We're going to talk about the subtle differences from chapter 1 to chapter 3 in the message that Jonah was to proclaim. But Jonah was given a new beginning to proclaim the message that God had given him to proclaim. But we also need to understand the commission now. The commission has changed subtly, but it has changed somewhat. Jonah is to preach only what God tells him to preach. Did you catch that? Verse 2, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
In chapter 1, Jonah was to tell the message that God was going to give, but the Lord also spoke of the evil wickedness of the Ninevites. He excludes that now, doesn't include that in this passage. Jonah receives the second chance, but there's a, a subtraction from the command. Before the Lord spoke of the wickedness of the Ninevites, that statement is not repeated. Instead, the command is to preach nothing less and nothing more than what God commands Jonah to preach. That's what Jonah is to do. The message of Jonah was to to share that the message of destruction and judgment of the people of Nineveh would happen in 40 days if they did not repent. That was his message. Nothing more, nothing less. There is always, can you imagine, I mean, there's the pull today to preach and to teach something that would be received by your audience, but can you imagine the tension, the pressure on Jonah to preach that? Here he's going to walk into Nineveh, that great city, as we'll see. We're going to look into Nineveh just in a moment. But his message is to proclaim that the God of the Hebrew people is going to bring destruction upon the Ninevites in 40 days. Repent or die. That's his message. How many of you would like to go into some strange city and preach that message? That is not a message you want to take anywhere. That's the message that... Jonah had to take to Nineveh. There would be tremendous pressure for Jonah to change it. In fact, there's going to be positive and negative tension for Jonah to change it, as we'll see in just a moment. But God was not then, and he's not now, interested in our pithy additions of promise or something positive to add to the message he has for us to proclaim. He doesn't need your additions to do that. Sometimes we work on methods and we work on practices and uh, we practice sharing the gospel with one another. Sometimes just telling the truth, laying it out, is the only way that we should be proclaiming the gospel. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to take away from it. Let's just share the gospel. The Reformation, one author says this, the reformation of souls and the awakening of hearts comes by means of the power of the gospel, Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the power of the gospel. The author continues, which comes through the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. Why would we take the power out of the gospel? Let's proclaim the gospel. And that's what Jonah was told to do, proclaim the message that God had to give to Jonah to give to the Ninevites. But I want us to notice something. Is something missing? Something missing. He was to preach God's message, but something seems to be missing. As we think through this, Jonah had just survived three days in the belly of a fish. His skin is likely bleached. The stench of being inside of a fish is probably still clinging to him. And he had been belched up onto the shore. Would that not be a great testimony to start out telling the Ninevites? When you think of revival opportunities, well, I'm going to start with, a, I'm going to start with my story. How did I get here? Let me tell you about the mercy of God the mercy of God was 
I was disobedient. I got swallowed by a fish. I lived in my underwater adventure for three days and got belched up onto the shore. And you can see by my skin that I've been bleached out. Believe in the God who gave me mercy. That could have been Jonah's message, but that's not what God wanted Jonah to preach. We must be very careful to preach what God wants us to preach, to proclaim what God wants us to proclaim, and to teach what God wants us to teach. If there was ever a testimony of the mercy of God's grace, Jonah was a walking example of it. But God wasn't interested in Jonah telling his underwater adventure. Jonah was not to sensationalize his fish story to add to the message that God had given to him. But God's still going to use Jonah's testimony without Jonah proclaiming it. There's not going to be any opportunity for Jonah to seize any glory, any value to himself. And we're going to notice that as Jonah begins, as we begin to see Jonah's call. This is his ministry and commissioning. So when I use the word call here, I'm saying this is Jonah's second commissioning. The Lord is commissioning him to go to Nineveh. And that's where we're going to spend a few moments here, in the city of Nineveh. Notice verses 3 and 4, the scripture says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah enters into the city of Nineveh, which he's obeyed. But again, the book has stripped off all of the details. It would have taken him some days to journey to Nineveh. He's finally arrived at Nineveh, and he begins to proclaim, and you can almost see there's a sense of a duty, a sense of diligence to it, but also, as we know from Jonah, he's not here willingly, obviously. It's taken extraordinary circumstances to get him here, and Jonah is just going to proclaim the message, and he can't wait for 40 days and destruction to come. That's where Jonah is at. He's just anxious for the brimstone and fire to hit this city. Jonah, though, was not to have his focus and attention on himself. He was called to just go to that great city and deliver the word of the Lord to them. The one sentence, that was his message. Go deliver the word of the Lord, this message. Four times in the book, the city of Nineveh is said to be that great city. We saw it already in chapter 1, verse 2. We've seen it twice tonight, verse 3, and in verse 4 of chapter 3. And again in chapter 4, verse 11, Nineveh is called that great city. The city of Nineveh was a great city because of its history. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, you can look at that later, but write that down. Genesis 10, 8 through 11, you'll understand or you'll find that the city of Nineveh was among the cities that Nimrod had founded right after the flood. So not long after the flood, you have the city of Nineveh founded by Nimrod. So it's one of those cities. It's also great because of its size, including the suburbs. The circumference of Nineveh was about 60 miles. It also had a population of somewhere around 600,000 people at the time of Jonah, which was massive for its time. 
Today, we don't think of a city of 600,000 people as being that great city. We think of cities much larger than that as being that great city. But of the time of Jonah, this was a massive city and would have taken some time to uh, walk through. One interior wall was eight miles in circumference. So you get through the outer edges of Nineveh and an outer wall, and then you get into uh, the inner part of the city and an inner wall, which is eight miles in circumference. And on that wall that's eight miles in circumference, there's 1,500 towers. This was a military city built by military people. It was a defensive city and an offensive city. So it was a great city, but it was also a great city in that it was great in its sin. It was an idolatrous people. They were immoral, cruel, and brutal. The text indicates, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, that Jonah was set before the king. And so, a few images for you. This comes from the, the British Museum. This is probably, if Jonah was brought into the court with a king, this is probably where he came. This is a, an artwork that is done to try to add the color that would have been there. I'm going to show you one of the uh, winged bulls in just a minute. These two winged bulls and the king in between and the, on the sides, the relief of the battles that had been fought and won, the victories that had come. And it would have been very ornate, very colorful. Uh, in fact, because of this, there was a lot of discussion and about the historicity and the accuracy of the book of Jonah. But the text uh, that is clearly laid out had been denied by liberal scholars for a long time, but has, throughout history, come to be found as, imagine this, factual. Uh, in the 1800s, in the mid-1800s, Austin Layard discovered and uncovered a hill which buried the ruins of Nineveh. And inside, it was remarkably preserved. The colors were all preserved because of the dry conditions of where Nineveh is located, northern Iraq. And so the British Museum has got a lot of those artifacts that came from that, that uh, archaeological endeavor and have put them on display, and they have added these colors. And so you could see the colors and the relief work. By the way, uh, we have one close to us. This is not from Nineveh. This is uh, from uh, just outside another Assyrian capital, but it gives us an idea. This, uh, horn, or this winged bull, you see the wing coming off of it. You see the horns on the hat of the face of a man that is the formation of the bull. This stands 16 feet tall and weighs 40 tons. And so if you were to stand up next to it, which you can, if you stand up next to it, you reach, I reach just above uh, the elbow on that. Uh, that's in the Oriental Institute. And you can go take a picture right beside it. And so you can imagine the size then, if you were to enter into this, and the statue would be the same size, 16 feet tall, and staring right at you, uh, this is what Jonah probably stood between as he addressed the king. Uh, and standing there, by the way, this is fascinating. If you ever go to the Oriental Institute, if you stand to the side, it looks like you're looking at it and it's walking. If you go to the front of it, it looks like it's walking at you. So if you stand over here on this side of it, 
it looks like it's coming to you. There's actually an extra leg uh, on the other side. So it is massive and huge in every way and uh, impressive even today. But can you imagine Jonah walking into this and seeing it? Jonah walking into this and you see the size of the people standing there right up, basically right up to the belly of these gigantic guardians. Now, one thing that you should notice, and it's difficult to see on this picture, but I'll show you here on this picture, you'll notice the different horns that wrap around the hat. The more horns, the more uh, divine this character is. The winged bull, the bull imagery, giving that imagery of great strength, and the wings giving it great mobility, and the horns wrapping around the hat are a sign of divinity. These are guardian gods of the Assyrians. Isn't it interesting that, as we'll get to in just a few days, or a few weeks to come, when Jonah proclaims the message that he is to proclaim, he proclaims it to the king standing between two of the Assyrian guardian gods. And his message is, repent. If you don't, in 40 days, the city will be destroyed. Can you imagine proclaiming that message in that intimidating environment? To the king of the Assyrians, a people of a people in Nineveh of 600,000 individuals. That's where he is proclaiming this, these being massive structures standing firm, and Jonah is to proclaim that 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. There wasn't a military force on the planet that could overthrow the city of Nineveh at the time. But Jonah's proclaiming that message regardless. These massive guardians were considered divine protectors of the king of Nineveh, and Jonah has to call them out. The Assyrians worship not only these divine protectors, but they also worship Dagon. And Dagon is the god fish. The upper part of the body was of a man, and then the tail of a fish. And so Dagon was one of the chief gods of the Assyrians. Interestingly enough, the chief city of the chief god Dagon was Joppa. I told you to remember Joppa a few moments ago. This was, uh, we get this depiction that's pulled from carvings and paintings and uh, so forth. So again, you can go to the British Museum and you could see uh, Dagon there. And this is the God, by the way, that falls over in other portions of Scripture, falls before the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, so that's Dagon who does that. And this is what he looks like. Uh, the Assyrians worshipped him specifically and viewed him as the God of the Mediterranean Sea, Joppa being his chief city, and obviously being a fish god. Can you imagine the testimony of Jonah if he just would have said, I was swallowed by a fish in the middle of the Mediterranean and belched up on the shore. By the way, I left from Joppa. You think he would have gotten an audience? Yeah, that's, you could see it. You could smell it on Jonah. And that would have been a significant message. But God didn't want Jonah to proclaim that. 
But Jonah proclaimed that because of God's use of it, not Jonah's use of it. Jonah was likely brought straight in to the king of Nineveh because he was bleached, but not because Jonah said that. Jonah said, repent. This city, this great city is going to fall in 40 days. The people of Nineveh appeared ready to listen, and I think this is an important distinction for us. The people of Nineveh appeared ready to listen, even despite their paganism. Even despite their paganism. The people of Nineveh seemed to be ready for the message to be proclaimed to them. That is another important and great truth for us. It's the Spirit's job to prepare hearts. And we proclaim the message. We don't proclaim an extra message or a different message. We proclaim the message that God has prepared hearts to hear. And that is the thrust of revivals. That is the thrust of the gospel message. Let us share that. Jonah goes a day's journey into the city, and he begins to proclaim, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The word for overthrown means to turn upside down. It refers to complete and utter destruction. From a human perspective, think of this. God sent one man into a city of 600,000, calling the city to repent. In 40 days. From the human perspective, this is never going to work. This is not going to happen. 600,000 people hearing the message to repent, actually repenting in 40 days before the city is destroyed by the proclamation of one smelly prophet. That's not going to work from human perspective. One author wrote this, Reformation comes when the people of God submit to the will of God to communicate to their world the word of God. Then God does what only God can do. We're going to see in just a moment, verse 5, against all, all odds, imaginable odds, the people repent in Nineveh. Think about that. They did not believe in Jonah. They believed in the God who sent Jonah. Beloved, what a wonderful testimony that should be shared when you've led someone to Christ. They didn't believe in you, that they believed in Christ. They believe in Jesus as their Savior. Notice what verse 5 says. We're not going to study. We're going to study it in detail next week. But uh, notice what verse 5 says. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. It wasn't just the king of Nineveh who said, Okay, you got me. I can smell the fish on you. I can see your bleached skin. I'm going to believe that you bring the message of destruction, Jonah, so I believe your message. 
It was 600,000 people putting on sackcloth and ashes from the greatest to the least, mourning their sin before the God of the Hebrews and believing that God was telling them the truth. That is against all human odds. Perhaps the greatest revival in human history was done when God moved through a smelly prophet. They did not believe in Jonah. They believed in God and were swept up in the mercy of God. What a great testimony for the Ninevites. They were swept up into the mercy of God. It's fascinating to me and it's important that we understand again that God was very specific about his message. Jonah's not going to like it. Jonah's going to really struggle with it. But God is very, very specific with his message. Jonah is to proclaim only what God had told him to proclaim. And great revival has come. Beloved, what a great reminder for you and I. The great truth of what your message is. You are great commission ambassadors. Your job is not to exalt or please yourself, to promote yourself. Jonah could have walked in and to, walked into the streets of Nineveh and said, look at what has happened to me. I have survived, and my God is greater than Dagon. He could have used those words. He didn't have to use those words. It showed on his skin that the God of the Hebrews was more powerful than Dagon, Dagon, the God of the Ninevites. May that be our testimony. We get so wrapped up in these competing ideas. Let us save vain philosophy for other discussions. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Let us proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a world where there's all kinds of ideas that have been brought in, and you can get lost in the debate of them. Say, well, I'm not able, I'm not smart enough to compete with others on these issues. You're not asked to be. You're not supposed to be a scholar on every issue that inflicts a sinful humanity. You are to be the proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us leave it there. And let us let the Spirit of God do the work that the Spirit of God is going to do. Let's close tonight in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the privilege that we have of spending time in your word, looking into the revival of a city that was so desperately wicked. Lord, as we study more of Nineveh in the coming days, we recognize that this is a city that's cruelty was renowned. They were a people who were quick to destroy. And yet 600,000 of them would turn from their wickedness and turn to you. It wasn't just the king. It was all of the people of Nineveh. We praise you that the message was simple. The message was clear. That Jonah wasn't the object of fascination. That when the people of Nineveh responded to the message that Jonah proclaimed, they believed not in Jonah, but in you. 
Lord, we pray that that would be the case when we share the gospel, that people would not believe in us, but believe in you. Lord, it is with great joy that we proclaim the message that you have given to us, a message that is the power of salvation, is the gospel itself. May we be bold and passionate about proclaiming its wonderful truths. Lord, it is with great joy that we have the opportunity to be with family and friends over this extended weekend, and I pray that your name would be glorified in all that we say and do, and that we would not miss opportunities to be great commission ambassadors, proclaiming the truth of your word, proclaiming the truth of the gospel with a boldness and a clarity that would be devoid of any self-promotion, that would be devoid of any aggrandizement that would focus upon us and us alone but instead would glorify you in every way. Lord, we thank you for the example of Jonah and the opportunity we now have to follow it. And as we depart from here, we ask your blessing upon us as we go, opportunities to abound, and faithfulness to walk through those opportunities when they do present themselves. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for all of these things. We praise you that we live in a nation where we can freely proclaim this wonderful truth. Pray that we take advantage of it while we still can that you alone would be exalted and glorified in it. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray, amen.